to your home of all things South American soccer, an in-depth look at the action across the whole continent, providing you with a tactical, analytical and critical view supported by Pinnacle's unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. Commonwealth competitions reach the semi-final stage and so we take a look at the final four in both the Libertadores and the Sudamericana ahead of those huge ties plus look at some of the players perhaps ready to shine in Europe this season. As ever, I'm joined for this one by uh, Simon Edwards in Colombia. Hi, good afternoon. Yeah, looking forward to getting into some interesting discussions about uh, the stars of the Libertadores and seeing some future stars in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And Tom Robinson also with us from perhaps the less sunny climes of Scotland. Hey, it's, it's about as good as it gets up here, so I'll, I'll take it for the time being. And, and a bit like Danilo um, in the uh, uh, Palmeiras second leg, I'm getting ready to get stuck into this one. <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to that straight away, in fact, because we'll, that is where we'll start as the Libertadores does indeed reach uh, the final four. Palmeiras are still there, um, but as soon as you mentioned that, Tom, we came through a quarterfinal, which maybe, we'll see how it pans out the rest of this tournament, might be the closest that we get to seeing Palmeiras lose. And when we look back on that quarterfinal, it may be a case of, were they slightly let off the hook there? How did you look back on that quarterfinal victory for Palmeiras, the champions, going into the semi-finals? Um, do you think it revealed anything, or are you still looking at them as they avoided catastrophe? And now they're really on course for potentially a third straight title. It's one of those games that really you can kind of look at one of two ways. On one hand, you can say, is this Palmeiras coming up against their first real challenge and, and really struggling? You know, they had to they had to suffer. On the other hand, you could definitely see it as a sign of their mental fortitude and, and the way they got through uh, a really tough tie against one of the you know best uh, teams in the tournament there so obviously that that first leg I think that there were definitely some worries there in terms of uh, going 2 now 2 nil down to Mineiro that Hulk penalty just before halftime which I thought was a bit soft um, and then Murillo scoring an own goal but um, yeah redeemed himself uh, did the centre back I mean to be fair both goals kind of just hit him. So I don't know how much he, he had really um, in, in either of the goals. They, they were both just sort of pinged off him. So, um, but either way, he, he was on the score sheet at both ends. And then obviously that very, very late equaliser from Danilo in the first leg um, gave um, gave them a vital draw, showed their fi- uh, fighting power to, to scrap back. And then in the second leg was very much more of an attritional uh, performance from Palmeiras. I thought Mineiro probably had the the better chances, but obviously that was always going to be the case when um, they went down to to first ten men for that absolute horror challenge from Danilo and Zaracho, and then obviously Gustavo Scarpa getting sent off as well. So I think we saw that resolute Palmeiras side that we that we've characterised uh, their performances over the last two competitions. And um, yeah, in the end, they, they had to squeak by on, on, on penalties. So I, I think it will give the other teams in this competition a, a slight uh, smile across their face, thinking, oh, maybe there is uh, a bit of a weak point that we can exploit there. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a side that knows how to get through these knockout competitions. And as Pinnacle's odds have, they uh, Palmeiras are 2.320 favourites to win the first leg away at Atletico Paranaense um, with 3.050 for a draw and 3.510 for an Atletico win. So it's a tough test um, coming up for them, but um, I think Palmeiras have have just about um, made it through with their reputation intact. Yeah, I mean, we've obviously talked a lot during this run to the quarterfinals before last in the last episode about the amount of goals they've scored, highlighting a lot of those very good attacking players. And this served as a very timely reminder, I think, of that other side of Palomedas, which we've seen over the years of, of when they've needed to. They're more than capable of being able to defend, see out results. And that second leg, down to nine men during the second half as well, of being able to hold on to a nil-nil, take it to penalties, and then eventually win, well and truly showed that 
Simon, do you look at Atletico Mineiro? Um, obviously, they're, they're not having the best league season. They change managers shortly before that quarterfinal as well. Do you think they, they will look back on those two games against Palmeiras and, and really think, you know what, we, we really missed our chance? We, we had two great opportunities. I think in the first leg, they probably would have been a little bit disappointed to it finish 2-2. And then certainly with the second leg, not being able to take advantage of those red cards. Yeah, of course. You know, I think uh, I think Palmeiras have showed their quality, their resilience. They're a really difficult side to beat. They know how to manage a game. They know how to see a game out. They've got the quality as well. So even against ten men, it's always a tricky one. Obviously, losing another man late on, um, it, it was always going to be tricky, regardless. But of course, you know, when you've got Hulk up front who can score from from anywhere, uh, pull the goal out of the bag. When you're kind of pushing. You know, of course, Mineta will be disappointed. Um, they controlled possession. They didn't convert that possession to as many clear chances, obviously one or two big ones. But um, they, you know, they'll be obviously disappointed because I think going into this tie, they would have been underdogs or they would have fancied their chances of giving Palmeiras a real game. Uh, but I think it just shows that Palmeiras in this competition can, can rise to the occasion. They can turn things, they can turn up the intensity and they can press for a goal when they want to but they're also very happy seeing a game out and that for me is why Palmeiras are always when at the beginning of the tournament always one of my favorites to, to win it because they have that combination they've got the quality and invention of Flamengo but they also have the resilience and the organization the discipline that really helps you in these big cup games yeah absolutely we're looking at their next opponents in the semi-finals, another Brazilian side as the Brazilians continue to dominate the Libertadores. And we're looking at another team that really came through with the most slender of margins. Atletico Paranaense knocking out Estudiantes in the quarterfinals. They're going to go into that semi-final as big underdogs against Palmeiras, given it's Palmeiras. Um, but they did have to see off a dangerous Estudiantes side, as we mentioned throughout the tournament, a side that I don't think many teams would have liked playing. And they needed to ride their luck considerably in that quarterfinal. The Estudiantes were left raging over that quarterfinal. How do you assess them, Tom, in light of that very slender 1-0 win over the course of the two legs, on aggregate just 1-0? Um, and do you see any hope for them going into that much more difficult test, it has to be said, from Estudiantes to Palmeiras? I mean, in theory, they've got no chance. I think in the Copa de Brazil, they they were fairly handily beaten over two legs by the um, by the same opposition, and um, it's a case that um, yeah, they're clearly not a free flowing side going forward. They've got some quality. You don't get it to this stage of the tournament without it, but um, yeah, they're clearly going to be underdogs. But having said that. They've shown in this tie against a, a decent Estudiantes side, albeit one that's maybe not quite at their full capacity and one that's maybe peaked a bit early. And and certainly, I think it's, what, two goals in the last seven games for Estudiantes. So, um, yeah, maybe that puts a slightly different colour on the, on the two clean sheets for Atletico. But, you know, they've shown that they can take it down to the trenches and fight as well, um, you know, and they've got, that little bit of quality in in the teen sensation of Vitor Roque, who, who came up with that injury time winner in the second leg to to send them through. Um, obviously, he alone probably isn't enough to to get them through. Um, but um, yeah, I think we've we've said it so many times on this podcast before. Right off Atletico at your peril. I do think this is probably the time where we can more comfortably say that. Um, definitely the 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 toughest challenge they've come up against. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think certainly Estudiantes that will feel very aggrieved from that goal that, that was ruled out in the second leg, header that hit the post, the rebound tapped in, supposedly an offside player blocking the view of the keeper. But to be honest, I think, you know, I think the keeper still had a pretty good view of it and was never getting to that ball, regardless of whether there was a player standing there or not. So they, they had to ride their luck a bit. Even their goal, there were claims of handball, although for me, very clearly the top of his shoulder. I don't think it was quite as um, controversial as as some may have it, um, and certainly not quite as tight as the um, River Velez handball decision that, that went against uh, River. Um, but yeah, this Atletico side, 
with Big Phil in charge, you know, just don't write them off uh, just yet, I would say. Yeah, Simon. So, I mean, on that subject about not writing off, what do you look at with Atletico Paranaense um, in terms of maybe their individuals or just how they might try and set up over the course of two legs? How do you think they may be able to pull off the upset and prevent Palomedas from marching on towards a third consecutive title? Yeah, you know, this game was incredibly tight, this, this quarterfinal. And the home side generally had the best of it in both ties. And then obviously they snatched that win later on. I think it's going to be an interesting one. Um, I think, you know, with Palmeiras, the, the challenge is they're not they're not a Flamengo. They're not going to pitch up in your, your half and then leave you space to count on the break. They're very cautious in what they do. There'll be spells when Palmeiras will throw everything um, to try and get that goal. But they definitely kind of pick their moments very carefully, uh, Palmeiras. They're very effective, uh, efficient, controlled side which makes it tricky to know how to kind of really get at them. Um, I think with Cuello, Canovio, I think there's potential there to kind of hit on the break. Uh, and I think that might be something they look to do. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't think they're massively well set up to to hurt Palmeiras. So I think it will be a game where they'll look to keep things tight. And if they can do the same as they did against uh, in their quarterfinal, then that may, may be their best bet, you know, <laughs> Keep it nil-nil for 180 minutes and score in the 96th minute just before the whistle blows. Um, but that might be a bit optimistic. Yeah, certainly uh, keeping Palmeiras out will likely be a lot more difficult than keeping out the Estudiantes side, who, as Tom said, had just begun to show maybe signs that they weren't quite at their best from what we saw earlier in the year. But that's going to be our first semi-final. The second one at least has a slight degree of variation in that we don't have two Brazilian sides there. We do have one of the teams that I think we always expected to be going deep into this tournament, Flamengo, but they go up against Vélez Sarsfield, who came through one of the all-Argentinian quarterfinals beating Tejeres. Um, Tom, we talked about that first one. We're looking at Palmeiras being heavy favourites. Are we looking at this second semi-final as well in, in terms of there's a, there's a firm favourite and it would be a shock if we didn't end up with that Palmeiras-Flamengo final? But I think we've been eyeing from almost the group stages. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I th- as soon as we saw the way that the uh, sort of knockout phases were lining up, I think everyone with any sense was saying, I mean, that's got a Palmeiras-Flamengo final written all over it. So clearly, Velez are, are big underdogs in this. I mean, just looking at the, the difference in quality between the two sides, Velez a much younger squad um, most of their team here have never got to a level like this, whereas the likes of Gabriel Barbosa, Jorge Deresqueta, David Luiz, Felipe Luiz, they've played at you know the very top of the game and, and this is bread and butter for them. So it should be, um, I would say, a fairly routine uh, Flamengo victory, but I think Given that we, you know, the two sides faced off in the in the group stages last year, I believe there were some pretty good clashes between the two there, and and I, I think that whenever you've got this clash between two different nations, that, that there's going to be different elements at play here. I, I mean, Flamengo did look very controlled, very impressive against the, albeit relatively limited Corinthian side, but they, they really did just brush them uh, away. I, I think Velas have got a little bit more about them in terms of uh, of options going forward. Uh, Lucas Janssen is on absolute amazing form. I think that's seven in 10 in the Libertadores this year. Two excellent headers in the first leg against Tajeres. And, you know, they've got maybe, maybe a bit more that could, that could trouble the back line of, of Flamengo, who don't always have too many teams go at them but defensively I think there's it's going to be hard to to imagine them putting up another stalwart display like they did against River so as much as I would love to see Velez in the final for you know a bit of a variation a bit of something different I think all the all the money would seem to be on Flamengo and and certainly in the first leg um, they are 2.030 to win away at Velez, whereas Velez are 3.880 um, for a home leg win. So definitely the pinnacles odds uh, are on a, a Flamengo victory. But I don't know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there are a few twists and turns. 
yeah, well, we certainly hope so. We're, we're painting a very uh, a, a bland picture of the Libertadores semi-finals at the moment. But before we go back to Velez, uh, Simon, I'll come to you to talk a bit about Flamengo because we are talking about a team that from the outset we looked at as capable of reaching the final, potentially winning the Libertadores. They're here again in the semi-finals. They've got a very winnable semi-final. What is it about this Flamengo side that you look at and, and see as their great strength? Why are they proving so formidable? Um, in South American football over the last few years? Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, it's the technical quality they have throughout the side. Uh, Diaz Carreta would be a good player in most European you know, top-flight teams. Um, the defensive line, again, it's you could perhaps see a bit of a lack of pace in certain areas, but, you know, Daniel Luis, Felipe Luis, it's, it's quality, it's real quality. And then Rivera is a good player. And then up front as well, you know, they've increasingly been playing Pedro alongside Gabriel, Barbosa and that that means Barbosa can find those pockets of space. It means that he doesn't always have to drop deep. You know, he likes to do that as well. But it, they really interchange well, uh, and the way that they control possession and push back the opposition. You know, when they're on form, it can be so difficult to get out. Um, the teams find themselves with just one man up front, very isolated. And you know, I think there are potentially some weaknesses for Flamengo on the break. I think uh, defensively, 1v1 defending isn't always amazing. But if you're so in control of a game and the opposition are so terrified and pushed back and can't get, can't put two or three passes together, then it's really difficult. So they impose themselves. You know, that's why, you know, in a way we're you know, not looking forward to a flamingo Palmeiras game, uh, game because it's kind of predictable. But on the other hand, it's a real interesting balance of styles and approaches. Um, and, and that's why Flamengo can seem so unbeatable until they're beaten and then you can kind of go, oh, you know, this is where this is where their weaknesses are. This is what why don't other teams do this? But it's it's easy to kind of see and, and say it on paper and, and to kind of plan it out. But when they're in control and when they're passing and they're moving uh, and they look so um dominant, it really is difficult for teams to kind of lay a glove on them. So that's something that Vela's gonna have to work out because when it works it looks unstoppable. And then suddenly there'll be a game every now and then when you think that this, this is what teams should do. But easier said than done, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, while we come back to, to Vélez, I guess it, what we see between the two sides as well, Tom, it is a very clear distinction in, in terms of how they operate, which is why I guess Flamengo are firm favourites. What we've seen, as we talked about before the quarterfinals, is Flamengo, like the big Brazilians, have so much money or so much more money than the rest of the continent. Even in the case of injury, they can go back out into the market and bring in really high-profile European quality South American players, but bringing them back to to South America as they did in this market is quite contrasting to what we're seeing from this Velez team that you touched on there, being predominantly based around a core of young players that have just been promoted from their academy. You mentioned Lucas Hansen, who was someone they brought in, but for not a, a lot of money over the last couple of years. He's up there as one of the top goal scorers in this year's Libertadores. But there's a number of other very interesting young players, one of which they're, they're not going to be with, unfortunately, in the semi-final due to injury. Um, but we'll still mention him, I'm sure. How do you look at Velez in terms of or assess their run to the semi-finals, which in itself, even if it was to end here, is still a major coup, I think, for this group of very young players with the expectation, certainly not being to get to the final four of the Libertadores. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a no-lose scenario for them, re, uh, realistically. Even though the league form's been god-awful, they've gone on this amazing run that no one would have realistically expected, um, certainly after a couple of games into the group stage. And, you know, it's great experience. It bodes well for, for them going forward. I mean, it certainly bodes well for the money they're going to make out of a number of these young players as well, no doubt, in the in the coming years. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, they can they can go there. It's a free hit. Everyone's expecting them to lose, but if they can pull something off, then you know they'll write themselves into into the Velez folklore. And and yeah, as you said, there's a number of great players um, coming through. Obviously, the star of this quarterfinal was Julian Fernandez, 18 year old, uh, a very tall, elegant kind of wide attacking player. Not necessarily bags of pace, but someone who just sort of slinks past people. There's, there's a, I don't know, I, th I feel like there's a little bit of an Angel Di Maria vibe about him. Um, and he came up with two huge moments 
Um, obviously, in the first leg, he um, he scored the winner in that 3-2 game against Ojedes. Really nice move that he kind of got the ball on the right, shifted it across. Really nice run from Perrone, um, who kind of burst forward from a, a, his usual sort of deeper lying midfield position, really dragged the Tajeda's defence out of position and, and just sort of no look, um, cut it back to uh, Julian, who, who sort of steered it into the bottom corner. And then to come off the bench again in the second leg with a really, really composed finish, kind of for a, a player that young, just to be like, oh, I'm one-on-one with a goalkeeper. Yeah, just take it round and I'll just caress it into the, the net, not rush the finish or anything like that. I think it really sort of made him stand out as someone who's probably not got too much limelight with the likes of Orellano, Perrone, uh, Gomez in defence and, and a number of other young players uh, that we haven't even mentioned. Um, so I think he really stood up and announced himself as, as a talent who, you know, could be even more exciting than perhaps we'd first um, re- realised. Um, and there's plenty more coming through the youth ranks as well as we've discussed on on previous pods. But even I think there's even players who you know, who might not be the biggest names even within a name that uh, a team that's not full of household names. You know, Jara, right back, provided two assists in the first leg. He's someone who, you know, he might never hit the heights of a, of a top European club, but he's he's pr- providing on a regular basis. Ortega's been very consistent for a while now on the left. Um, and even Gadajalde, he's, he's one of these guys who's a bit of a late bloomer by Vélez standards. I think he's 22 now really sort of anchoring that midfield as more of the physical presence alongside the the elegance and class of Perrone. So they've they've got I think it was a case that in both quarterfinals they had seven academy products feature in both the games. So it's just showing you what a great um setup they've got there and for all of Argentina's woes in falling behind the financial gap that Brazil have got at the moment, it shows that, you know, if you like invest in your academy, get put some faith in the young players. It's still a country that's going to produce loads and loads of good players, and and certainly I think we'll be we'll be looking back at this team in seven eight years time and think, well, look look at what all those players have gone on to achieve, and and maybe it wasn't such a surprise that they got this far. So yeah, I think fair, you know credit to credit to Velez, and um and I'll I'll definitely be uh, rooting for them in the semis. Yeah, I think that will be the case for everyone who's not a Flamengo supporter, just hoping for something <laughs> of an upset in the tournament. It's increasingly, seemingly, as anyone who comes up against either Palmeiras or Flamengo goes in as a massive underdog, such as how, how good those two teams have become. Um, those first legs of the semi-finals coming up next week, Tuesday, Paranaense against Palmeiras, Wednesday, Vélez-Flamengo, and then the reverse of those games the week after that. So a big week coming up in the Libertadores, Next week, a big week in the Sudamericana as well, where we have a little bit more diversity. One all-Brazilian semi-final and the other one an Ecuadorian against a Peruvian. Um, Simon, we'll, we'll talk about that interesting semi-final first of all, the one which does pit Independiente del Valle up against Melgar. Um, Independiente del Valle are a team that we've talked about quite a lot over the, the course of the last year or so, given their rise in South American football and, and the praise that they've rightly received for doing so many good things with their academy, with their obviously astute scouting, bringing the right profile of players in, um, good coaching as well. Maybe not so much of a surprise to see them there, but Melgar have probably been one of the surprise packages in the tournament. Um, what do you make of that matchup um, is the first semi-final in the Sudamericana? Yeah, it's an interesting one. For me, it feels like two teams who really, really earn their play. I don't really deserve it. It makes me, makes me happy to see these teams do so well. On For IDV, again, it's, it's a scouting because while we focus on the academy and the academy is great, the recruitment is also really, really smart. Not just in terms of bringing in good players, but bringing in the right players for the system, the players who kind of buy into the, the ideology of the club, who just, they're just a good fit. You know, they're the anti Manchester United. <laughs> you know, they they buy they don't buy the best players, but they buy players who are the best for them and, and, it, and it works and you know, to see them uh, doing so well. And then obviously there's a mix of some academy guys in there as well. 
Marco Angulo, I'm really happy to see him playing more regularly. I think he's a really good player, 20 year old midfielder, um, who, yeah, who looks like, for me, a player who could play at a high level if he continues to develop. So to see them pick up a good, what, 5 1 aggregate win, um, narrow victory away, and then to turn on the style at home, 4 1 against Tachira. Tachira, obviously, done have done very well to get there with their budget. Got some good players in there as well, but IDV blew them away, which is, you know, which is great for the Ecuadorians. And to see them up against uh, a Peruvian side, again, you know, Peru have been disappointing in continental competition, we can say, in the last few years. So to have this great story is is really, really important. You know, a couple of red cards for Internacional towards the end of the game probably helped them just over the line, but it's not as though they were being dominated. You know, this was a pretty good, solid performance in both the legs for Melga. It wasn't like uh, Internacional were like dominating possession. I do think those red cards in the second half towards the end helped them avoid a really nervy ending to the game, but to keep it tight, to go through to uh, to penalties and then get the job done with composed fashion, I think uh, says a lot about this side. I think it's a side that's made the most of what they have. Um, and, and it shows, again, you know, we've seen that there's different ways you can win. We saw Velez, you know, with these youth, good youth players, um, IDV with their really smart recruitment and a clear identity. And I think Melgar, again, you know, they, they've shown that if you've got a really good unified group, good manager, two good managers now, um, you can you can still compete. Uh, so, you know, it's not all Brazil. <laughs> if you get everything right and the stars align, you can get to a semi-final. And now one of these two teams will be in the final, which is great, you know. Great for Peruvian football and, and great for IDV and what IDV represents in South American football. So, yeah, a nice positive story. Sudamericana is the new Libertadores. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be nice to get that variety in the final, um, such as the draw having one of those two guaranteed. Um, Tom, as I said, Independiente de Valle, we're kind of getting a little bit more used to seeing them on this kind of stage, given their exploits previously in this competition, um, winning it, performing well in the Libertadores as well. There's a sense that in this year's tournament, they kind of just keep doing enough. Like They, they haven't blown people away with the level of their performances. There's obviously the disappointment of not progressing in the, the Libertadores and then having come down into this tournament with wins over Lanús, where they, they just, again, they did enough. Tachira, they edged the away leg and then had a bit too much for the Venezuelans in the second leg at home. But do you feel as though they're going to need to find another level um, to get past this Melgar side, who, of course, as Simon just said, they're a very good unit. They have the tournament's leading goal scorer in Bernardo Cuesta. So there's plenty of, of danger there. And they probably are a team that, unlike Independiente de Valle, have really impressed throughout the Sudamericana. Even when you go back to the group stage, when Racing Club of Argentina were the big favourites in that group, were unbeaten for a long, long time as well during that stage. And Melgar went and beat them deservedly. So um, do you look at that and think Independiente de Valle have to be at their very best to get past Melgar to get the final? Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. I think Melga have been absolutely great. It's not often that we sing the praises of Peruvian club football, and uh, but they definitely are bucking the trend in, in how they run and their focus on youth. And uh, they've been a real pleasure to watch. I think that Independiente del Valle are a fantastic club, obviously, as, as Simon mentioned there. But I don't feel like this is the best iteration of their team I mean yes Angulo's a, f- a fantastic player he's one who who definitely looks like he could he could go on but a lot of the others they're kind of you know f- relying a little bit more on perhaps those experienced schemers like Junior Sonosa, Faravelli you know players players like that who who are very good at this level um, but perhaps aren't the IDV that have blown us away in the past I, th- I think you know, that's all going to come because they've done great in the Libertadores under 20 and, and there's a lot of players who are going to clearly come through. And to, to say, oh yeah, they're an all right team and they're in the semifinals of the Sudamericana is, is um, just shows the kind of esteem that we hold them in these days. But I think Melga, I've, I think they've only lost maybe one game since the start of June. Um, they're, they're a really good unit. I am interested to see how they are with uh, Lavagen in, in charge. Um, obviously, a lot of the good work done by the former manager, now 
making Colombia great again, hopefully. Um, but um, yeah, he's he's someone who's not necessarily filled me with loads of confidence. Um, I had the chance to meet him when he was Belgrano manager. Um, and, you know, he talks a good game, but results on the pitch haven't always been up to the same same level. And um, yeah, I, I think that's the, that's the one kind of worry maybe I have for Melgar. Are they going to hopefully just have all those, you know, don't mess with a winning formula and then they might be all right? Or, you know, um, are they going to be quite the same force that they were um, pre Lavagen? So that's something to be interested to watch. Reina's a great little prospect who's who's definitely worth keeping an eye on as well. And it's definitely, for me, the, the most intriguing tie in both these two competition semi-finals, it's I think whoever wins this, I would be firmly hoping that they take the title home. Um, Pinnacle has IDV one point six seven one favourites to win the first leg, with Melgar a pretty uh, whopping four point nine four zero. Um, I think there could be some good money on on a draw at three point eight four zero. So um, yeah, perhaps. Um, Melgar for the for the surprise surprise victory and um, yeah we we shall see. Yeah, it does seem like pretty decent value considering it's a Melgar team that did draw away from home against Internacional as underdogs in Brazil and as we say Independiente del Valle have at times looked. Well, I think we can say as you did there, not as good as they have done in previous years. So it's certainly one which could be an interesting prospect of an upset there. Whoever goes through is going to be coming up against the Brazilian side, as probably expected. The Brazilian team still dominant in the Sudamericana as well. Um, Simon, that semi-final is going to be Atletico Goianiense against Sao Paulo. Um, having both come through on paper, which were quite difficult um, quarterfinals, Sao Paulo beating another Brazilian side, Atletico Goianiense, in the end, finding it relatively comfortable against Luis Suarez and Nacional. Um, looking back with those two quarterfinals in mind, who are you looking at it in that Brazilian semi-final as being the most likely finalist in this year's Sudamericana? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, because Goianense really stepped things up and and, uh, and got a 3-0 win. Um, and they, they got the last-minute red card. You know, usually when Uruguayan teams are on their way out, they like to throw a few kicks <laughs> and make leave a little bit of an impact on the opposition. But this time it was a, a Brazilian red card late on. Uh, but yeah, obviously, Goianense, you know, very impressive to see them go through uh, so convincingly against one of the traditional names, powers in South American football. Um, so, you know, Goianense looking in good shape. Sao Paulo, obviously a massive, massive club who perhaps have underachieved, uh, particularly on continental level in recent years. Um, they'll be happy to have made it to the semi-finals, a tough game against Ceará, um, one on penalties, uh, as you mentioned, 4-3 in the end. So it's going to be an interesting one. I think, you know, on paper, I would say Sao Paulo, despite perhaps not putting together the side, the, 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 the size of the club would indicate they should be able to put together. Um, but they're, they're a good team. I would probably lean towards Sao Paulo, but... Sao Paulo, for me, are always a little bit unconvincing. They don't seem to be quite the sum of their parts, and I don't think the parts are quite as good as they have been over the last year or so. It's a it's a good team. Um, you would suggest, you would expect Sao Paulo to be the favourites, but coming into this game, you've seen Goianese putting up a big win. I think it's going to be an interesting one, and it's obviously two Brazilian sides as well, which makes it even more interesting or less interesting. It, it brings a new twist to things. They know each other. You know what I mean? So it's it's not gonna it's not gonna be any surprises really for either side. So that's gonna be a factor as well. So for me, I think it's gonna be a tight one. Um, I would probably slightly lean Sao Paulo, but I, I wouldn't be particularly surprised if Goianense picks up the win. You know, Pinnacle have uh, Goianense at three point zero two zero for the win uh, in the first leg at home. Sao Paulo at two point four two zero. So. Pinnacle agree with me, but I'm I'm not massively convinced. And with the draw at 3.230, that looks like a decent option as well for me. Yes, I mean, Simon there, Tom, makes the, makes the point of we, we are talking about one of the traditional giants in Brazilian football in Sao Paulo up against 
one of the the new kids on the block, I suppose, in, in Gorniense, certainly not one of those with the, the history of Sao Paulo. Do you, do you think that is a factor when you look at this semi-final? Obviously, when you, when you look on paper at just those quarter-final results and the manner in which Gorniense knocked out a Nacional side who, frankly, when you bring in Luis Suarez, I think had expectations of of hoping that would be the signing that was able to push them further on in the tournament. Um, it's a statement win for them. Uh, do you think that holds more bearing than perhaps the status of the clubs or, or how are you assessing that semi-final? It's definitely made me sit up and take notice of them. Before, I thought they were just kind of just about getting by and you know they're, they're not a side that I've particularly paid too much attention to. They're, they're not doing great in the uh, in this uh, Brasileiro. Um, it seems like they're putting all their eggs in the uh, in this basket, a bit like Velez in the Libertadores. But certainly the the struggle that Sao Paulo had, despite having been um, in great form throughout the Sudamericana group stage and, and at the other rounds, they've always been one of the teams that we've earmarked as favourites to win this. You know, it's just a bit of a stumble in the road just at the wrong time. Whereas, yeah, Goyanayense are sort of coming coming good right uh, at the right time as well in, in the competition. So I, I think you, you've got to favour Sao Paulo, um, just the quality of, of players in their squad. You know, they've got experienced players who've, who've played a lot in Europe. They've got a nice mix of players from, from around South America as well. Obviously, Jonathan Caleri has been in pretty good form this year. Um, Galopo coming in as well. You've got Neves, Colorado. It's um, on on paper they've got a, they've got a really talented squad, but um, yeah, you you just never know how this goes. And, and Sudamericana is the type of uh, competition for those upstarts who are who are shaking shaking up the traditional powers. So with Luis uh, Fernando, you know, with a with a, a good contribution in this tournament, despite that red card and. Diego Churin with a few assists, you know, there's there's definitely uh, a threat there for, for Sao Paulo. So I would I would expect them to be in the final, but it's not a sure thing. No, well, those two semi-finals, like the Libertadores, will take place the first legs next week, second legs the following week. The final of the Sudamericana, not too far away, in fact, on the 1st of October in the Estadio Mario Alberto Kempes in Cordoba. So very much coming into that Final straight in that competition and with only four teams remaining, as we just laid out, it's really difficult to predict exactly who will be lifting the trophy this year. Um, of course, we talk always first and foremost about the action here in South America, but it'd be remiss of us not to also talk about some pretty big tournaments going on in Europe, which are just getting underway, really. The Champions League uh, it has been doing its qualifying rounds. We're almost ready for the draw. So the, the big boys will be entering. And of course, European football is awash with South American talent. Um, when we're looking at the Champions League, uh, Simon, I'll firstly come to you from a South American perspective. Um, who or, or what are you looking for this year in the Champions League? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Obviously, I think uh, a lot of teams um, rely on that kind of spark and that invention and that. You know, that, that, that X factor that many South American players can kind of bring to the teams and we've seen that in some sides and I think you know just to start from a Colombian perspective I think we've seen Liverpool get a bit more of a spark get more of that invention with Luis Diaz arriving um, coming in from the left-hand side I think this is going to be a huge season for him um, he obviously joined in January and already made a really positive contribution I think in terms of scoring goals in terms of making the decisive uh, impact in the final third, I think this is going to be a huge campaign for him. So for me, straight away, looking to see what Luis Diaz can do for Liverpool will be really, really interesting. And then you look at some of the huge teams that really have kind of a South American core, you know, with Real Madrid in particular, you know, there's a lot of very, very important players there who are South American. Um, just Eva Wing, you've got Vinicius Junior with all his pace and his drive and his and his you know, direct dribbling on one side and the more invention, the more pause, the more creativity of Rodrigo on the other. Plus, you've got some other South Americans in there. So, yeah, for me, to see what Luis Diaz can do at Liverpool is going to be really interesting. And then, you know, that, that Real Madrid side that has those wingers, but then also you know, there's a certain uh, South American in the middle of the park as well. 
Yeah, I think Real Madrid is going to be an interesting one, uh, Tom, given that they've obviously lost one of the key figures in their hugely successful sides over the previous years, in Casemiro leaving to join Manchester United. Um, but the now focus seems to be on a younger group of players there in the midfield, one of which is, of course, Fede Valverde, uh, the Uruguayan. Do you think this is going to be the year for Valverde to really grow in stature at a club as big as Real Madrid? Or how much do you think they're going to miss the experience of Casemiro? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I, th- I think even last season, we, we saw him come on and, and play a really, really important uh, role in their Champions League win. So I think he's, from someone who maybe you could see getting lost along the way to someone who is already making a big impact and clearly part of their future, I, I think he's just going to go on and on because he's coming into the peak of his career. He's a key figure for Uruguay and I, I can see him having quite a big impact at the World Cup. And yeah, he's definitely someone who's who's got a, a huge future ahead of him. So I would expect him to still play a lot. I, I think because of the differences in terms of the positions, I think maybe you're more likely to see Chiumeni and Camavinga fill those roles left by Casemiro. I think Valverde is still probably battling out with maybe some of the more forward-thinking, attacking midfielder options from that three, um, maybe providing an alternative, a bit more of a direct alternative to Modric or or Cruz, or even being that auxiliary winger who can kind of, you know, do do a bit of everything. But yeah, Real Madrid know how to do that soccer well, and they're always going to be there at some point in the latter stages. So it's, it's going to be interesting. And I think another player who's, who's well, a couple of Brazilians, I think, who who could be really potentially really exciting in the Champions League. Um, Rafinha, it's going to be really good to see him at this stage. He, he's he been absolutely great for Leeds and I thought that he would have been a perfect signing for any of those Champions League clubs, you know, Liverpool or Bayern Munich. Obviously at Barcelona, it's a bit of a basket case, but who knows what they're, what they're able to do there. And hopefully we get to see a bit of Anthony in, in the group stage with Ajax, although it's looking increasingly like he, he may be uh, without Champions League football this season, potentially next as well. Um, and yeah, that's going to be interesting. But um, I think, you know, one thing that we've also got to got to say is that there's, you know, could this be PSG's year with, with Messi and Neymar being key players in that team? I think Gautier is a really, really good manager who could take them on to that next level. So, that would be quite um, a storyline if if the two icons of Argentinian and Brazilian football at the moment um, could could add another Champions League to their name. But um, yeah, I mean, wherever you look, there's there's great stories. I I think typically I'm drawn to maybe more of those teams that we don't see on um, on a, on a yearly basis. You know, the likes of. Um, Spurs, for example, and their big South American representation, or or even just looking at, you know, teams like uh, Brugge or um, Leverkusen with, um, you know, some of the players they've got there as well. So, um, yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of interest at this stage when everything's possible. And, and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll be seeing some big South American representation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, littered throughout the tournament, most of the teams have at least some South Americans there. Um Tom just mentioned PSG there, um, Simon, when we're talking about South American football, certainly over the last few years, it's a club that's profile in South America has, has gone through the roof because of some of the players they've been able to bring in, some of the players they still have. Um, but the Champions League has, has still managed to elude them one way or the other. We're looking at them starting this year in the league in formidable fashion, scoring a lot of goals. Neymar seems back to almost like his best. Certainly, it seems a long time since we've seen him playing like that for PSG. Um, Neymar and Messi are both in the same lineup and, and enjoying playing with each other once again. However, there's that underlying rumours of, of unrest with Mbappe. Um, how do you th- see that three working together? And do you think it could be the year that PSG finally lift the Champions League? It's such a huge, huge year for that club and those players in terms of narrative because you've also got to put in the World Cup in November, December time, which has another impact. You know, uh, this is Messi's final World Cup, potentially 
I don't think it is, but we'll see. Neymar's final World Cup, he said at least it's kind of the career-defining World Cup for potentially both of these players in terms of that impact. Then it's the Champions League and then it's PSG wanting to win the Champions League, investing all their money. These players wanting to make their time in PSG a success. And I think you can, in some extent, only consider their time there a success if they win that that trophy. So it's so difficult. It's going to be fascinating to see how much any of these players actually care about the French League by the time we get to like September, October, November time when the Champions League games are coming thick and fast, the World Cup is around the corner. It'll be interesting to see if they have kind of a lot of rotation going on domestically because I I think <laughs> Messi and Neymar really couldn't care less about the French League given everything else that's up to play for this year. So it'll be fascinating to see. But as you say, yeah, it's going to be huge in terms of not only putting a good run and trying to win that big Champions League, but also getting in the right condition, the right shape to to do well in this, what is going to be for these players, such an important World Cup. You know, if, if Neymar wins the World Cup with Brazil, he's immediately on the podium or in the top five, six, seven greatest Brazilian players of all time because he's won a World Cup and he's the captain and he's the star and he's in the conversation at the very least. Uh, and Neymar, if Neymar wins a World Cup, then then that puts massive weight behind this claim that he's the greatest player of all time and he's better than Maradona. You know, there's always that case that Maradona won a World Cup, Messi hasn't. So it's going to be huge. And I think this PSG season is going to be fascinating. Um, it's like, you know, you could probably skip certain episodes of this of this drama in terms of Nice away or whatever. But uh, when it comes to those big Champions League games, it's going to be really, really interesting. And it'll be fascinating to see because one thing is destroying teams with your incredible individual talent and obviously increasingly finding that that link and that connection which was so important at Barcelona but another thing is defending <laughs> trying to play all these great attacking players and still have a decent defense and still be able to press from the front it's going to be a whole different challenge uh, and then you add to that the fact that these players will be having a one eye on the world cup and uh, not wanting to overly exert themselves or, or risk their participation in that tournament. I think in terms of storylines and drama, um, I think uh, PSG is going to be very, very interesting this year. And in terms of you know, one other player that I think I really like and I'm happy to see him playing in this tournament is, is Hincapié at uh, Leverkusen. I think he's going to be one of the breakout kind of defensive stars at the World Cup with Ecuador. So I think uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how he gets up to speed in the the group stage in the Libertadores because he looks so composed. Um, Ecuador was great. <laughs> Moises Caicedo we've seen in the league and in the Premier League doing really, really great things with Brighton. Blatter is a really quick, interesting winner. He's a young player as well. And then Incapi at the back. So it's going to be really interesting to see. And I think we're talking about summer transfers, but January, I think those, those three players, if they haven't moved, they'll be, I think, top of many people's uh, shopping list come January as well. Yeah, well, I mean, they're already being linked with, with some pretty big moves already in this window. We'll see if they come to fruition over the next week or so. Um, just before we, we wrap that up, then Simon mentioned um, Liverpool earlier about Luis Diaz. Um, they're obviously going to be in the conversation when we're talking about favourites for the Champions League and for the Premier League. Um, Tom, last time round, you obviously said that Darwin Nunez was going to be a flop. Uh, <laughs> and... Obviously, he's made a, a bit of a, a, a tricky start to life with the Premier League with that red card, which has obviously prompted a lot of people to, to start making these these very broad questions about his his mentality and how he's going to have to adjust to the English game, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, obviously, tongue-in-cheek, we know what you think of Darwin Nunez, but how do you assess um, his start to life and certainly looking forward in terms of Liverpool in the Champions League whether or not they can this year go and, and actually lift the trophy. Yeah, I think that was a, a slight misrepresentation <laughs> of my views, but I'll let it slide. I'll let it slide. Um, I won't come at you like Darwin, so uh, you can uh, you, you can you can rest easy there. Um, no, I think as I said, it, he's a player who's he's going to need a bit of time. He's not the finished article. I think he'll score score plenty of goals, but probably not enough to make him this household superstar over overnight I think it'll take him you know maybe a year or two and it's always going to be hard when you've had such amazing players come before you in, in the likes of Mane and you, you're alongside Salah as well so 
you know the the level is got to be really high i think he's shown he can he can do it in europe i think maybe he might be someone who thrives a little bit more in the european competition than than the premier league but it's a it's a tough learning curve and and i think as well one thing to note about nunez and and you know maybe this is more of a discussion about liverpool generally is you know it's his success is going to be very much based on how the team is operating and, and how it's functioning. Obviously, there's been some pretty crucial injuries at the moment. They seem a little bit jaded and not quite at that same intensity level as, as last year, which is understandable given how excellent they've had to be just to keep pace with Manchester City. So I think when Liverpool improve as a team and when they've got to know each other, then he's going he's, he's gonna to settle in and, and he'll do just fine. But But I think maybe not blow people away and and say oh that was a a bargain um it might just be uh, yeah that was about par for for what you'd pay for that kind of player so you know we've seen plenty of other players take longer to adapt and um i think there's there's positive signs around him so um yeah i think generally a lot of the focus on after three games in the premier league it's who's the crisis club pass the baton on to the next crisis club and people are very quick to make uh, snap judgments on on all of that so I think you know a bit like my fantasy football team let's just let it sit there and mellow for a bit and then we can uh, then we can start making some decisions top of the league as well by the way so. <laughs> congratulations um yeah I mean absolutely Premier League has already very much highlighted the the, the hot takes one way or the other and people already within three games going one way on one player and then quickly going the other um and that will no doubt be the case with several of the players that we've mentioned here um well unless either of you have anything else you'd like to add on on the subject of european football with obviously our eyes on south america um i think we can we can probably call it a day I would love to, you know, have a five-minute discussion about Walter Benitez in, in the PSV goal, but I think we'll leave that for another time. <laughs> no, all good, all good. I mean, Lissandro was a flop and now he's world-class, so what a difference a week makes. Yeah, exactly. All the talk about his height one game later and suddenly he's ready for the Premier League. So, another certainly a player that will continue to keep a look on and... and Perhaps next month, when we uh, have a little bit more of uh, European football to look back on, we can uh, look at that again. Of course, the draw for the group stage of the Champions League takes place tomorrow, as we record on August the 25th. So we'll know a lot more then about what's to come over the next weeks and months. Um, and we'll be back next month to look at them. Um, as ever, Simon, thanks very much for your input. No, you're very welcome. And Tom, thanks very much as well. Muchas gracias. Lovely. Well, uh, you can find all the latest odds and betting insight on Pinnacle.com, plus plenty of content on Twitter at Pinnacle or the Instagram Pinnacle.betting with plenty of other sports as well. Uh, please gamble responsibly. Any odds mentioned were correct at the time of recording, but go to Pinnacle.com to check for the latest. We'll see you again next month for another episode of South American Soccer Insights.